Lord, we thank you for this time we can come together and learn from your word. We thank you for all that you have done for us. And as we get into your word, we pray that you'll work in our hearts, that you'll help us to pay attention and to to learn what it is that you would have us to learn, Lord. I pray that you'll strengthen me and help me to have the right words to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Actually, after Jeremy preached his message last week, I keep getting this song playing in the back of my head. The one by Bobby McFerrin, you know, the one that goes, Don't worry, be happy. The whole time I was writing this message, every once in a while I'd hear, Don't worry, be happy. So if I get a little confused today, um, it's Jeremy's fault. (laughs) No, actually, yeah. Jeremy's message was really good. If you missed it, you missed something that I think was important for us to hear. Um, We're getting back into Hebrews. Um, And uh, the last two messages in Hebrews, we looked at the first chapter, which started off, and, and actually the whole first chapter was about God speaking to us. First, we saw that he spoke to us in the Old Testament in many ways and at different times through the apostles and the pro- through the through the prophets. I'm sorry. And um, the message was of the coming Messiah or the Anointed One. Second, we saw that in these last days. And these last days were defined by the fact that the anointed one has come. So that these last days, God spoke to us in his son. In the Hebrew language, the word Messiah means anointed. In the Greek language, the word Christ means anointed. But it's not an anointed one, because there were people that were anointed. David was anointed to be king. He was the anointed one. He was actually the anointed one to be, to be prophet, priest, and king. The message that God gave to us in his son was in the totality of who Jesus was, what he said, and what he did in his ministry. Remember, John the Baptist testified to Jesus as being the anointed one. And when John was in prison, he had some doubts, and he sent his disciples and asked Jesus. And I wanted to look at Matthew 11, 2-6, and it says this, Now when John, while imprisoned, heard the works of, of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples, And he said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go, report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. 
the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. The gospel is essentially the good news. The good news of what? The coming of the anointed one. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Third, we saw God speak for his son when he raised him from the dead. God declared that his son was higher than the angels and affirmed his relationship by saying, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. Fourth, we saw God spoke to his son when he declared him the anointed king and invited him to sit at his right hand. Hebrews 1, 8 and 9 says, But of the son he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and a righteous scepter is a scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness, and you have hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And then verse 13 says, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So God anoints Jesus king, prophet, and priest. And he says, come and sit at my right hand. Now that the preacher has laid out a very important foundation for us by telling us, God has given us this good news in his son. He continues by saying this in Hebrews 2, 1 to 4. For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through the angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, and God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. In Hebrews Two, one to four, the preacher interjects his discussion of God's message with a stern warning, and this is a stern warning. In essence, this is the practical application that we should be getting from the previous 14 verses. There are four phrases in the first verse which outline the intent and importance of his warning for this reason. First, the preacher reminds us that he has just said something very important. And now he's telling us why it is so important. Jesus came to give us a very important message. The question is, what are we supposed to do about it? For this reason, we must pay much closer attention. This phrase starts to answer the question with the imperative, we must. This is not an option. This is a necessity. The word translated must here in the original carries four shades of meaning. It is binding, it is necessary, 
it is proper, and it is inevitable. So when the preacher says, we must, he is not leaving any wiggle room. The preacher then continues his imperative. We must pay much closer attention. There are two things to note about this need for our attention. First, the preacher is not saying, you must. He is saying, we must pay much closer attention. In other words, he is including himself. And by doing so, he is making it clear he is talking to fellow believers. See, any person who says this, even when he's writing the word of God, I am a person and I know no matter how close attention I pay, I can always pay closer. And I'm sure that's what was in the preacher's mind when he wrote this down, to say we must pay much closer attention. And you're going to hear that phrase a lot because that is the key to the message to the message that he's saying here. We need to pay attention. So, let's pay attention. Second, the implication here is not, I repeat, not, it is not that we are not paying any attention at all. The implication is we need to pay more attention, as he says, much closer attention. And I say this because there are two words in the original, much closer. He's really emphasizing that it's not just a little bit more, it's a lot more. So what is it that we are supposed to be paying attention to? The answer to that is in the next phrase. For this reason, we much must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Again, he got done in the first 14 verses of the thing, or in the first chapter, talking about the message, talking about God speaking to us. And now he's telling us we have to pay attention. Well, what is it we have to pay attention to? What he just got done telling us. And what is it that he just got done telling us? God's message of the gospel. In Matthew 11 to 5, as I read earlier, Jesus replied to John the Baptist's disciples by telling them to tell John, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor hear the gospel preached to them. So, what we have heard is the good news encompassed in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5, Paul writes a very concise statement laying out the critical points we must understand about the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, 
If you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, Paul continues naming groups of people who saw Jesus after the resurrection until we get to verse 8 where he said, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So we have a list of all these people that are alive at the time that he's saying this. And they can say, yes, I saw Jesus. So he's making a very critical point here about the resurrection, and that is a key point. A lot of people like to leave Jesus on the cross. That's not where he was. Some people would would like to see him remain in the grave, but we know that's not true. He rose, and that is critical to the good news. In verses 1 and 2, Paul says three things about our relationship to the gospel. First, we received it. That means we did not reject the message. He's talking to believers. Second, we stand in the gospel. This means that the gospel is a firm foundation which enables us to stand in the time of trouble. And third, we are saved by the gospel. This means that our future hope is in this salvation where we will one day be with Christ. In verse 3, Paul tells us that the gospel is of first importance. And that reinforces what the preacher's getting at here, why he's saying we must pay much closer attention. Paul is saying the same thing here, first importance. And that he is also just passing on a message that he received. He received it directly from Christ. Remember, Christ came to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul had to have Christ come and directly intervene in his life. That's how stubborn he was. But, thank the Lord he did. Paul then continues telling us the essential facts that are necessary to understand about the gospel. Fact one. Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Fact two, Jesus was buried and rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Fact three, Jesus was seen by many people after his resurrection, including Paul. So the critical points of my salvation are these. I must understand Jesus died for my sins, according to the scriptures. I must understand that he was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. I must receive this message. I must come to Christ. I must acknowledge that I am a sinner and I must ask him for his forgiveness. You may say, wait a minute. This is too simple. 
There has to be more to it than that. Jesus said in Mark 15.10, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Little children do not understand complicated things. Little children understand simple things. This is why the gospel is so simple. This is also why so many people who think of themselves as wise or intelligent stumble over this simple message of the gospel. Truly, the simple message is, like the publican, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, that is the person between the Pharisee and the publican who went away justified. That is the person, he humbled himself, he beat on his breast and he said, forgive me. That is the essence of this gospel message, that we must turn to Christ in humility, acknowledge our sin, and ask for forgiveness. So, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. The New American Standard adds from it to make the sentence more readable in English. It's not there in the original. Actually, what we would be drifting away from is Jesus. George Guthrie, in his commentary on the NIV, the NIV application commentary on Hebrews, says this about the word translated drift away. The image of drifting is an especially potent one. The word used here, paraumai, could signify objects that slip away, such as a ring that slips off the finger, or objects that go into the wrong direction, such as a piece of food that goes down the windpipe. Perhaps the image is closer to our author's intention in this passage is that of a ship drifting or missing the harbor it intended to enter because of strong currents or winds. Or like a boat that you forget to set the anchor and the wind just sort of blows it and pretty soon you have no idea where you are because You've just been blown away. You've drifted off. The preacher's message here is we must closely pay attention to our relationship with Christ. If we do not, our inattention will cause us to slowly get further and further away until we get to a point where the storm hits and everything falls apart. The most tragic thing is many Christians don't even realize it's happening until it's way too late. This is why there are so many professing Christians who don't attend church. Or they only attend on special occasions like Christmas and Easter. C.S. Lewis in his book Mere Christianity said this, we have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief 
nor any other will automatically remain alive in our mind. It must be fed. And as a matter of fact, if you examine a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away. According to the book of Hebrews, this seems to be a problem which has plagued the church from the beginning. Now here is where the stern warning comes. Here the preacher is using the logical method of arguing from the lesser to the greater. At the end of my last message, I illustrated this with the idea of a candle is able to light a room. How much more could the sun? The lesser a candle, the greater the sun. This is why the preacher spent so much time establishing not only is Jesus not an angel, but he is much greater than the angels. He is arguing that the message from the angels, the lesser beings, was important and deserved punishment. He then asks the question, how much more important is the message from Jesus? Hebrews 2, verse 2, starting there. It says, For if the word spoken through the angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. Here the preacher is referring to the fact that the law was ordained by angels, and transgressing the law resulted in a just penalty. When Stephen answered the false accusers before the council, um, he talks about the law. And he says it this way in Acts 7, 37-38. He says, This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Here the prophet Moses, he was was speaking of Jesus. I'm interjecting that here. In verse 38, Stephen continues about Moses. He says, This is the one who was in the congregation of the wilderness, together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai, who was with our fathers, and he, Moses, received living oracles, the law, to pass on to you. Stephen then continues in 7, 52 and 53, Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you do not keep it. And the preacher is looking at, at what's going on here and, and the understanding of the, the Hebrew mind, so to speak, is that the law was given to us by angels. God used the angels as the oracles to, to give us the law. And you break the law, you get punished. 
This same law, James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. The implication is that severe judgment will fall on the lawbreaker. The preacher continues to look from the lesser to the greater argument by asking, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Um, in verse 3 in the rest, it says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was the first spoken through the Lord? It was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own. So we see now he's saying, if breaking the law received a just punishment, how much more is it that we will not escape? And here it comes. Does that mean we can lose our salvation? Some people would say that. There are a lot of people that say, see, right here, proves we can lose our salvation. The problem with this argument is it equates breaking the law with neglecting our relationship. There's a big difference. First, the law was never intended to deliver, to deliver anyone from hell. That is what Jesus did on the cross. As Paul said in Galatians, the law is our instructor, which makes us aware of our transgressions, that we may turn to Jesus and enter into a saving relationship with him. I want to look back into the Old Testament at someone who did let his relationship slip. I'm not going to read the passage because it's way too long to read. Um, it's Second Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Story of David and Bathsheba. The first step. It was time for the kings to go to war and David sent Joab. Now there was nothing really wrong with him sending Joab. As a matter of fact, he could say, well, I have a kingdom to administer. That's a logical reason. But he sent Joab, but he didn't go to war as he was supposed to. See, he, this was really his first act of inattention to his duties. The second step, David let his eyes stray where they shouldn't. The passage says he saw Bathsheba. But if he immediately turned his back, this would have gone no further. It wasn't just that he saw, he watched. The third step, David inquired about Bathsheba. Now he's starting to get into some serious trouble. But you see how there's a pattern here? It's a slow progression. These little tiny steps. The fourth step, 
David invited Bathsheba. This resulted in David's sin becoming evident. She was going to have a baby. The fifth step. David tries to hide his sin by inviting Uriah the Hittite, hoping he would think the child was his. This didn't work because Uriah didn't go home. So David took the sixth and final step to try and hide his sin. He instructed Joab to make sure Uriah was put in a position where he would certainly die in battle. At this point, David thought, everybody will think the child was Uriah's, and he won't be around to tell anybody differently. So here we see this one little act of an intention led to this next act, led to this next act, led to this next act, which finally resulted in an act of murder. Pure and simple murder. Did David escape? No, God sent Nathan to confront him for this great evil. Second Samuel 12, 9 and 10 says this. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and has, have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword and the son of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. This is what Nathan said would happen to David. And I read through the chapters. It was over 40 years of his life that these things were happening to him. The sword will never depart from your house. God will rise up evil against David from his own household. Absalom. God will give David's wives to his own companion in broad daylight. The child that is born of this sin will die. This sin caused David many heartaches over the years that followed. He did not go to hell, but he certainly did not escape God's chastening. And I think that's what the preacher's getting at here. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. It's important to understand, God's chastening in our lives is proof of his love. Even as a father corrects the son whom he delights. In 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, Paul instructs the discipline of a man for living with his mother. and says this, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of Jesus. Here again, very severe punishment. This is very similar to what Jesus said in Mark 9, 47. 
says, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes and be cast into hell. Jesus is saying this, take sin very seriously. That's what the preacher is saying. Take sin very seriously. Don't drift away. Pay much closer attention to your relationship with Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gave these instructions concerning communion. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, we've heard that a lot on communion services. But if you continue on, it says, But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge his own body rightly. For this reason, many are weak and sick, and a number sleep or are dead. In other words, God brought judgment on the Corinthians, including to the point of some people dying as punishment for whatever it was that they were doing. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. See, again, it's chastening. That's what he's talking about here when he's saying, how will we escape? We will not escape God's chastening. It's as simple as that. He is going to chasten us. And... No chastening seems pleasant. But it's the truth. And it is also for our best interest. Again, here, Paul is telling the Corinthians their behavior has become so bad, some of them are sick and some of them are even dead. Again, we see God's chasing can be very severe. The preacher's warning here is, yes, God's chasing can be severe. And no, you will not have any chance of escaping. But there is a way to prevent it. I think there are three key factors to help us pay closer attention. See, that's what he was saying. Don't drift away. How do we not drift away? We pay much closer attention to our relationship. So here are the three factors. The first is to study God's word. Psalm 119.11. I like the way the New American Standard puts it. It says, Your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. We should consider God's word a treasure and live that way. Jesus said, Where your treasure There is where your heart will also be. We should study God's word for ourselves, not let somebody else study it for us. James MacDonald in the series Think Differently has stressed the fact that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. He also adds that when we spend time studying the scripture, that it washes our mind, and in so doing, our study of the Scripture changes the way we think to the way God wants us to. 
our thought lives must be changed. We, and Jeremy taught in the Sunday school on how we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is the same principle. This is the same thing. Our minds must be transferred, transformed by studying the Scripture. Not just a cursory reading of it, but really try and understand, try and get into. The second is fellowship with believers. Proverbs 27.17 says, Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. In other words, relationships between people, when we have a relationship. And, and God created us to be relational. He created us to have relationships with other people. And, he's, and, and, and what he's getting at here is that as we come together in fellowship, both on a one-on-one -on -one and as a group basis, that we are strengthening each other. We are encouraging each other. Ecclesiastes 4, 9-12 says it in such a way I can't improve on it. It says this, Two are better than one because they have a good return on their labor. For if either of them falls, one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another one to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. And then it says, a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. So what he's getting at here is that relationships strengthen us. And it's important to have those relationships. That it really makes a difference. Now I'll tell you, that's one of the hardest things for me to do sometimes, is to have those kinds of relationships. It's something I, I can do, but I don't reach out for relationships, so to speak. The third is praying always. And this one here, I think, is the hardest one for me, the most difficult one. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 and 18 says, Pray without ceasing in everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And I left this one for the last because it is, I believe, the most important. Um, prayer is not that which we do with flowery words or vain repetitions. It's truly your hearts cry out to God. Actually, Jeremy said something in his message last week. I that really struck home with me. I actually had to go back and listen to his message over again and find it so that I could get the quote precisely correct. He said, prayer means to turn your thoughts and feelings towards God. You know, it, it, it is something that I should have realized but it's one of those things, you know, a lot of times when we think of prayer, we think of asking God for things. But really, that is part of our prayer. And when it says, pray without ceasing, that's what it's saying. All the time, 
our heart and our thoughts should be turned to God. I think the preacher's warning give us two things we should pray for specifically. And I think we should all be looking at these two things in our prayer lives. Lord, remind me to pay much closer attention to you so I don't drift away. And the second prayer that we should be praying is, Lord, give me the ability to pay much closer attention so that I don't drift away. And it's important for us to understand, I can't do it. It's not like I'm going to resolve in my mind I'm going to pay attention to him every moment of the day. That's not what's going to happen. He's going to work it in me through his Holy Spirit. He's given the Spirit to me to give me strength. And that's the important thing. He needs to remind me when I'm not paying attention. And he can give me the strength so that I can pay attention more often. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that that in Hebrews it teaches us that we should pay much closer attention to our relationship with you. We pray that you will help us in this. That you will remind us that we do need to pay attention and that you will remind us when we are not paying attention. And that you will give us the strength to turn our hearts to you and pay attention to you so that we can walk in a way that is worthy of saying, I believe in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.